Well, good evening. If you would take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 9 tonight. There are some chapters and parts of books that move the great plot of the Bible along. And then there are other chapters in the Bible that fill in the plot and fill in the characters and give us a better understanding of those chapters where the plot is being advanced, uh, the great good news of the gospel. And chapter 9 of 2 Samuel is one of those pictures that takes us, I think, from maybe a blurry black and white picture to a vivid color picture. And it's a picture of Mephibosheth, a picture of David, and ultimately it's a picture of Jesus. And so that's where we're going to be tonight. Um, I will say, if you can say the words Mephibosheth and anesthetist um, three times fast, there ought to be a prize for you. Um, I don't have one, uh, but you will have the satisfaction of knowing you can do something a lot of people can't do. Uh, So I will endeavor to get it right tonight uh, every time I say Mephibosheth. Um, Let's ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Father, open our hearts, open our minds, soften our wills, uh, give us undivided hearts, give us undistracted minds. Lord, you have... Uh, saved us, and you are making us more and more into your image, to that restored image. And we pray that we might, uh, by this chapter tonight and by your Spirit's work, uh, come to look more and more like our elder brother who has brought many sons to glory. Uh, Do that, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, he's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, Where is your servant? What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, 
and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Thus far, God's inerrant word. Promises are funny things. Until about a hundred years ago, you made a promise either by speaking to someone and looking them in the eye, or at worst, you took your own hand and you wrote something out and that was your promise. Or if you were illiterate, someone might have written the promise down for you in their own hand. And at the very least, you would have made an X there next to your name indicating that you were subscribing to this promise. But in our times, a hundred years later, everything is mediated through something else, like a screen or a computer wire or a keyboard or a stylus or now just looking our face and our phone determining that it is in fact us and therefore it's okay to, to follow whatever command we've given it. And that's a relatively recent thing. But I think it's why maybe in our time we are so surprised when someone keeps his promise, when someone does something hard. And so most of the time we see promises and maybe they're in text messages or emails or they're on Facebook or they're uh, tweets. There's no better place to make a promise, though, I understand, than Snapchat because apparently it disappears after a few seconds. That's perfectly made for, uh, for us and the way we keep our promises. David keeps an amazing promise tonight in 2 Samuel 9. And it gives us a picture of David's character. It's said that character is what you are when no one is looking. And character is also what you are when you don't have to do something but you choose to do that thing that is the right thing, that is the God-honoring thing, that in fact keeps your word and the promise that you made. Let's look tonight under two headings. The first of these is a promise kept. Twenty years or so have passed since David and Jonathan had made a covenant. If you flip back in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20, you recall Jonathan is the son of David, and at this point Saul, uh, Jonathan's father, is the king of Israel, and he is losing his mind. And we talked about paranoids this morning, having enemies, and Saul was convinced that David was in fact his enemy. But yet Saul and Jonathan love one another as brothers, and so in 1 Samuel 20, verse 42, at the end of this in 
encounter where they had been shooting this arrow and it was going to be a message to David. Verse 42, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed. This covenant of friendship between David and Jonathan meant something. It meant something to Jonathan because he he risks his head multiple times to intercede with his crazy father on behalf of his friend. But by this point, Jonathan has died on Mount Gilboa uh, with his father in in a foolish battle. And now, years later, David has consolidated his throne. Things are good in his kingdom And perhaps in some wonderful providential way God brings to mind, maybe in wistful ways as he thought back on his friends over his life and he thought of Jonathan. And so he asked his servant, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to? David is not in a tight spot here. So often, especially in the Psalms and in 1 Samuel, we see David on the run. His back is against a wall. He is being pursued. He doesn't know who he can trust. He is alone. He is crying out to the Lord. But this is David in a different phase of his life. And now things are good. He uh, is able to... um, Uh, he, He doesn't need a palace. He doesn't need strength. He doesn't need talents. He does. He has everything he needs. God has given him all that he needed to be king. And what is David doing? He's searching for a way to be generous. Friends, we have all of the riches of God in Christ Jesus And I wonder, do you cultivate that same kind of habit of looking for chances to be generous? And generosity doesn't necessarily mean a bunch of zeros on a check. Generosity may be a meal that you make for someone. It may be opening a door for someone. It may be speaking to someone who needs an encouraging word. It may be a card. I had an old Latin teacher who just died in the last few years up in her upper 90s. And she was a godly Christian woman and she couldn't get out and go do and visit, but um, she prided herself. Uh, she told people in her last year she was a cardiologist because she spent all day just sending people cards and encouraging them. And she liked puns and she said, I'm a cardiologist now. Uh, and she sent cards and encouraging words. But David is in this place searching for a chance to be generous. You remember, as I said, Saul and his sons had died. He had only had one surviving son, Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth dies um, in battle with, uh, when Abner was assassinated. And here is Mephibosheth. He's five years old. He's barely old enough to understand what is going on when the house of Saul falls and how chaotic it must have been. His nurse bundles him up quickly and she flees with him, but apparently there's some sort of accident and his feet are damaged in that. Understand and and, and just marinate for a second on the fact that in every sense 
of the term, Mephibosheth was the ultimate loser. Mephibosheth had been, uh, first of all, he had lost his family. Uh, His father had died when he was five. We don't have any account of his uh, mother. Uh, He goes, uh, if you will, to live with the help because those were the only people who were in a position to care for him at that point in his life. Mephibosheth had been born to great prestige. He was in the royal family, but that wasn't worth a cup of coffee now. Because that house had fallen, and another house had arisen in Israel, the house of David. And now Mephibosheth, if he is anything, not only does he not have prestige, he's a man who will be watched, because he's a threat to the new house of David. And David may not have looked unfavorably on him, but you can bet the people around David We're just waiting to find out if Mephibosheth was going to lead some sort of rebellion and restore the throne. Mephibosheth would have grown up in his earliest years wealthy. Uh, He would have had much wealth and many servants and uh, every need that could be met at that that point in the world could be met uh, for Mephibosheth. And now he's got nothing. He's resorting to living on the kindness of one of his father's former servants. And don't dismiss the fact that he's got these awkward two feet that don't work like they should. Some of you know what it is because of uh, disabilities or surgeries and recovery from knees and hips and things like that, to, to walk with a limp and to struggle with that. Imagine having two feet that didn't work. And there, there was no ADA in Israel. Uh, imagine how, uh, what a cruel place the world could be, and especially for somebody who, who used to be somebody, but he's nobody now. A friend of mine, his father-in-law was the two-term governor of a state in the South, and six or eight years after leaving office, he's in the hardware store one day looking for a part to go on something at his house, and this lady comes by, and she says, excuse me, are, are you Jim Edwards? And Governor Edwards said, well, I used to be. Uh, Mephibosheth used to be something, but he's not anymore. And when David summons him, he brings nothing but his poverty and his disability And the shame of his family, that's all he can stumble in and bring to the table. And think about David. He doesn't um, wait on Mephibosheth to come to him. He, He sends for Mephibosheth. Now, imagine you're Mephibosheth. And you've been trying to live discreetly because somebody from the old royal house is a threat to somebody in the new royal house. And the word comes that the king wants to see you. What's your first thought? Off with my head. Or somebody's going to run through me with a sword. Or my temple is going to get you know, nailed into the ground as we read about Sisera this morning. There was no way, I suspect, in Mephibosheth's head that he 
could have anticipated this was not going to have a very quick and painful and unhappy ending. Remember um, in Acts chapter 9, when Saul has come to faith, he's met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And remember the Lord speaks to Ananias and says, Ananias, I want you to go and find Brother Saul. And Ananias is like, well, huh? <laughs> Lord, could you go over that again? Something must have gotten lost in translation. You want me to go to Saul? But notice there is no hesitancy that is recorded on Mephibosheth's part. Mephibosheth, I think, is walking in faith. He's walking in confidence in the goodness of God. Who knew how much or how little Mephibosheth knew about his father's, Jonathan's, relationship with King David? But he goes to David, and David, in keeping this promise, shows kindness to him. David was safe. David had consolidated his kingdom, and now David could be generous. You know, there are times when you keep a promise not because it's convenient. You keep it, in fact, because it is very inconvenient, but that's what a covenant is. A covenant is the bringing together of love and law. So when a couple comes and enters into what we speak of as the covenant of marriage, it is a relationship based upon love, but now it is overlaid with the force of law. And so David and Jonathan, when they made this covenant with one another, it was a promise that would endure, that David couldn't weasel his way out of, and he didn't try to. In fact, he, he aggressively is trying to keep this promise. I can't help but think of the uh, the Princeton, the late Princeton professor from 100 years, died 100 years ago, B.B. Warfield. He and his young wife, Annie, took a honeymoon to Europe, and they were walking, and there was some sort of terrible thunderstorm, and uh, we're not sure. We think maybe she was struck by lightning or something, but she became an invalid. And B.B. Warfield, for 39 years, was never away from her more than two hours at a time. So instead of going and speaking, as he might have done as an itinerant preacher and whatnot, he stayed at Princeton and he taught and he wrote, and it's a gift to the church that he was so prolific in writing, but it was because of his devotion to this woman with whom he had such a bright future, and instead she is confined to the bed for the rest of her life. But that was the kind of promise-keeping that we see David doing to Jonathan through kindness to Mephibosheth. We have a promise kept, but also a promise made. Look in, beginning in verse 5, when David calls Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, at the end of verse 6, says, Behold, I am your servant. And you know he must have wondered what's coming next. Behold, I am your servant. And it would have been not out of keeping with the times for David to have said, not for long. But instead, listen to David's answer. There, there's a three, three parts to this answer in verse 7. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of your father, and you shall eat at my table always. 
this picture of protection of Mephibosheth, had gone, if he had been from the former royal house and had gone into most any throne room in the world at that time, he would have been struck down instantly. It was nothing personal. It was strictly business. It's what you did. But David speaks his first words, do not fear. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. In giving him this protection, I think it's a real picture of our justification. Jesus says to sinners who turn to him in faith, do not fear. Do not fear, I will show you kindness Not because there is anything inherent in you deserving kindness. I will show you kindness because of your elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as God was, was, David was showing kindness to Mephibosheth, he may have never even met Mephibosheth. He may have never even heard of Mephibosheth before this day. He wasn't doing it because of anything inherent in Mephibosheth, except that he was connected to Jonathan. And so you and I stand with an advocate, and we stand in his righteousness, and he takes our sin, and God can say to us, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of Christ Jesus. He says a second thing to him, I will restore to you all the land of your father, God is about a restoration in us. It's what we call sanctification. It is taking on the Father's likeness. It is taking on the family likeness. It is looking more and more like our Heavenly Father. It is restoring us to what we once were in our father Adam. And so he says, don't fear I'm going to show you kindness, and in fact, I'm going to restore to you what you've lost. And as we, we strive to work out our salvation in the Christian life, and we strive to do that because it's God who is at work in us, God really is restoring to us the land that our foolishness has lost. Mephibosheth, in this sense, is a victim. But we've lost our own land. We've done this to ourselves. And God is gracious and kind, not only to say, do not fear, I'm going to show you kindness, but I'm going to restore, I'm going to begin this work to make you fit for eternity. And then thirdly, don't don't overlook those last words, and you shall eat at my table always. This was not just legal. This was not just a restoration and the keeping of a promise to his late friend Jonathan, who's been dead for 20 years. This is a picture of adoption. This is, the, in our justification and our sanctification, that's a, those are legal frameworks, but there's something delightful and precious about our adoption. We are brought near. 
And we indeed feast at the king's table. We feast at the king's table every time we gather in the Lord's Supper. We feast at the king's table when we come together and we worship and we sing together and we pray together and we eat together and we hear the word of God together and and speak the word of God back to him in response. We are feasting at the king's table. He has never turned a one away who has come to him. He, don't, don't you have this fear sometimes, maybe there was something you were entitled to, but you hate to, to go back to the store clerk or to the waitress and ask for that, because what if they say no, and won't that be awkward? God has never said no to one who has cried out to him. And indeed, he says... You shall eat at my table always. And indeed, we look forward to that great marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus returns in all of the fullness of the consummation of his kingdom, we really will, who are in Christ, eat at his table always. One famous Bible teacher has a principle of biblical interpretation And that is, if there is a good character and a bad character in a story in the Bible, we're the bad character. (laughs) We're, We're not the good guy. And if there are two bad characters in a story, we're the worst of the two characters. It's just a safe bet. Friends, you and I are not David. We're Mephibosheth. We, we limp with our two bad feet and the mess that we've made of our lives and our sin and our rebellion and the rightful judgment of God against our sin. And to that, God speaks to sinners and says, do not fear, for I have made a way for you. And I will uh, restore to you, I will begin to restore to you what you have lost in your sin and rebellion. And you will eat at my table always. Friends, he doesn't just do that for you. He loves you. And and maybe you've used that word too much in your life. Not only does he love you, he likes you. If I can say that in a way that's not flippant. He he wants you at his table. And all we bring is our shame and our poverty and and every other way that we have made messes. Walter Chantry said, Are not all sinners like Mephibosheth? We are sons of a king named Adam, who was Lord of all creation. We come from royal stock. We are deserving of death and greatly disfigured by the fall. Christ is a mighty power who has spoiled principalities, making an open show of them on the cross. And that is the Jesus that sits on the throne, on David's throne. David could be fickle. David was a horrible manager of his family. But in 2 Samuel 9, David is pointing forward to David's greater son, 
King Jesus. And he is welcoming the lame and the poor and the shamed. Don't you know when Mephibosheth in his awkward, halting way stumbled out of the palace that day, the awe he must have felt, the wonder? Brothers and sisters, life in the covenant ought to give us that same sense as we leave here Lord's Day by Lord's Day. As we are reminded of the gospel, as we are reminded of those who are poor, who have uh, made hash of our lives and our relationships and friendships and the ways we've not lived to our potential. And God says, do not fear. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest and you will eat at my table forever. That same privilege is ours if we are adopted children of the King. Think tonight of what it is, of of how relatively together Mephibosheth's life was compared to us. And we bring all of that and King Jesus summons us to him And he doesn't strike us down as would be right and good and just. If in when he God said in the garden, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And Adam would have been would have had no complaint if in that moment when they sinned, God had struck him dead. And he had been in the eternal judgment of God and wrath of God forever. But God says, no, there's coming one who will bruise, uh, who will, will crush the head of the serpent. And there is one who has come who, who brings in the lame and the weak and the poor and those who don't have it together and says, do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of Jesus And I will restore to you all the land that you have lost. And you shall eat at my table always. Let's pray. Our Lord, we struggle to believe these things. We struggle to believe sometimes that we are in a bigger mess than Mephibosheth ever was. And then we struggle to believe that your kindness and mercy in Christ Jesus are real and they're for sinners like us lord let us see in this picture of king david uh, the greater david christ jesus lord let us come and feast at his table we pray these things in jesus name amen